Good morning, Pastor Ransom here. We continue in our series, The Kings of Summer. We have one more sermon after today, and then that sermon series is complete. I hope you've enjoyed hearing it as much as I've enjoyed preaching it. We're going to be studying today the entirety of chapter 25 from 2 Kings. The, the portion of Scripture I'm going to read here in a moment is from 2 Kings 24, verses 17-20. through 20. It's kind of an introduction to what's going to happen in 25, and I felt that would be the most helpful thing to begin our study this morning with. So let me uh, read the Scripture to you. I'll pray and we'll jump right into the sermon. So again, 2 Kings 24, verses 17-20 through 20 from the English Standard Version. It reads as follows, And the king of Babylon, that would be Nebuchadnezzar, uh, made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. That went pretty well. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for these times uh, of virtual worship. Lord, thank you that you have given us the technology for us to be able to gather together and for us to give our, our unworthy praise. But as it is brought to you by the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, it is found to be worthy no matter where we sit, no matter where we sing from. I pray this morning that as your word goes out over the internet, uh, to those who are listening, that it would land on fertile ground. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. For those of you that aren't aware, I grew up in Maine. I'm a maniac. And one of the uh, uh, most unique features of Maine is that it has uh, about 60,000 acres of what they call blueberry barrens. Now, not like uh, royalty that's, that lords over the blueberries, the barrens of the blueberries, but no, like barrens, like a, a large uh, patch of land that seems like it has no life. And so what you'd see, uh, especially down east where I come from, is you would see uh, a forested area, but then it would open up to like a rocky type hillside, and it would look like there was no vegetation, but really what covers that area are, are slow little shrubs covered in delicious, sweet, bright blue Maine wild blueberries. And so there's 60,000 acres of this kind of land uh, throughout Maine. Uh, and what they have to do with these blueberry areas, if they're being maintained, if they're being used for, uh, uh, for the crop of blueberries, is every couple of years you have to burn it. And so you'll see either some people who are more rustic, they'll do this by hand. Others have these large machines you tow behind a tractor that have these little wicks uh, that burn. Uh, the blueberry bushes down. And so uh, the low heat, as you burn the blueberry bushes, it, it, it puts nutrients into the soil, it, uh, it encourages new growth, it sanitizes the crop from bugs and other diseases. And so uh, what you have left at the end of that burning time is literally a big black patch of land. It looks like a scorched earth. And as I was reading and studying 1 Kings 25 this week, that's the image that came to my mind. These big large patches of black, scorched landscape. Directly after uh, the blueberry field is burned, uh, all that's left is that, 
that black carnage. However, what comes out of it? Another healthy green growth of fresh blueberry crop. At the beginning of this series, I mentioned that um, First and Second Kings really is about God chopping down the tree of the nation of Israel. It's not, it's not something that, that went great for a bit and then it finally caved. No, as soon as, as human kings took the throne in Israel, they were on a downward trend. And so every time a, an evil king took the throne, it was another blow to the trunk of Israel and Judah. And so here, in 1 Kings 25, not only has the tree been felled, it's been set ablaze. Burned to the ground. Here, in in 2 Kings 25, we will see nothing left but a burnt husk. a, 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 A patch of scorched earth. But when we think all hope is lost, when we look and read, we're going to study in in depth the the things that Nebuchadnezzar did to to destroy Judah, to to destroy Jerusalem. At the end of that, it's just going to be a pile of burning rubble, but from that burning rubble will sprout a a whisper of hope, as one scholar put it. Before we get there, let's dish. What's been going on in the royal family of Judah? So we left off with Josiah last week. He was a faithful king, a good king. He put into in action reforms. He found the book of the law in the temple. He read it. He realized and he was convicted of those sins. And he, he responded in repentance and obedience. He brought the people along. He reenacted the Passover. He was a great king. Well, here's the deal. He dies in battle. Not many verses later after we finished last week. I, I often wonder what the health wealth folks who believe that God, when you are good with God, He only blesses what they do with a passage like that. Josiah, a faithful king, as good as they came since David and Solomon dies in battle prematurely. He then, uh, the, the throne then is taken by his son Jehoahaz. There you go. Uh, those of you getting ready to have a child, you can put that on your name list. Jehoahaz. So he takes the throne. He immediately reverts back to the ways of his grandfather Amon and his great-grandfather Manasseh. He does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And at this time, Assyria, that's been the kind of the, the power, the political and military power in the region, is weakening, and Egypt makes a, it makes a go for power. Okay, so they make a power move. So during the, the time of Jehoahaz, Egypt comes up and they throw him off the throne. They replace him with his brother Jehoiakim. Now there will be a quiz afterwards, so make sure you write these names down. So Jehoiakim, Jehoahaz is out. Jehoiakim takes the throne. Babylon at that point is coming to power. They go ahead and wipe Egypt off the map. Egypt never recovers from the defeat that Babylon deals them. And so they are simply a sideline power for the rest of history at this point. Babylon rises to power under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. And he makes Jehoiakim a vassal. That means that he, um, uh, he, Jehoiakim now serves Babylon directly. They pay taxes and things like that. Well, Jehoiakim is not, uh, does not like the situation. And so he decides, well, uh, I couldn't stand up against Egypt, but maybe there's a chance with Babylon. Okay, Maybe there's a chance. And so he rebels. Nebuchadnezzar wants to nip this in the bud, so he sends down the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans remove Jehoiakim from the throne. They kill him and replace him with his son Jehoiachin, okay? which is with a C-H-I-N at the bottom, at the end of his name. So again, Jehoiachin is evil, and, and for some reason he thinks where his father failed, he can succeed. 
And so uh, after three months of him being on the throne, he also rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And what happens is Nebuchadnezzar just says, listen, we're done with this. So he takes Jehoiachin um, from the throne. He delivers him to Babylon. He replaces him with his uncle, Mattaniah. And that's where we start the passage we read today. Mattaniah renames himself for some reason, Zedekiah. And now he is the, the king uh, from the line of David still, but the uncle of Jehoiachin. Uh, he is the king that has been put in place by Babylon. Um, for whatever reason, and you can see, you can read about this in, in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet that is interacting with Zedekiah while he's on the throne. For whatever reason, from the very beginning of his rule, Zedekiah has his eyes on, again, rebelling against Babylon. Now, these, these last three kings of Judah, uh, they're not very good at reading the room. Okay? They're, they're not very good at, at understanding their own skill set. And, and reacting properly to what they are able to do. You might even say they're not the sharpest swords in the armory, okay? And, and, and what happens is that they, they, he rebels. They rebel and rebel and rebel against Babylon, thinking that they can overthrow Babylon, the greatest superpower known to the world until this time. And so, this final rebellion, the final straw, causes Nebuchadnezzar to say, that's it. That's it. I've, I've, I've dealt with this three kings in a row. I am going to put an end to this. And that is where we end in verse 20. And, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. The final straw. Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, I'm going to take care of this. And what we get in 2 Kings 25 is a list of all the things that Nebuchadnezzar does to subjugate the kingdom of Judah. And I'll tell you this, he is a skilled, he's skilled at it. He does it very, very well. Let's take a look. Verse 1 of 2 Kings 25. First, what he does is it says he brings uh, in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. They built siege works all around it. So the first thing he does is he lays siege to Jerusalem. They cannot escape. This is basically uh, the, the, uh, the strategy of starving out the people. When things get so bad inside the city where nothing can go in and nothing can come out, there's no water, there's no food, there's no escape, they eventually will surrender. And so Nebuchadnezzar sets up siege works and waits. If you want to see what happens next, look at verse 3 of 2 Kings 25. On the ninth day of the fourth month of the siege, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people in the land. By, by four months in, there's absolutely no food for anybody. If you want to read about what happens further and, uh, and, and see the sadness, the, the darkness that descends upon Jerusalem, you can read Lamentations. The book of Lamentations is kind of an obituary, a, a mourning song for the city of Jerusalem as it is laid under siege and, and falls under subjugation of Nebuchadnezzar. Here's an example. This is from Lamentations 2.3. This is what God is doing through this, this, this attack of Nebuchadnezzar. It says, he has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn them from his right hand and in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. God is burning Judah down through Nebuchadnezzar. That's what's happening. So not only was there a siege, uh, but, but during the siege, there's some action. All right, Zedekiah happens to knock a hole in the wall and escape with some soldiers. Again, just surrender, okay? 
But he thinks, I've got this. I'll get some soldiers. We'll escape. Well, it doesn't go great at all. Immediately, they're scattered. He is captured and sentenced. Look at 2 Kings 25. This is the action of Nebuchadnezzar. How do you subjugate a people? First of all, you lay siege. Second of all, this is how you treat their king. So then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon in Riblah, which is a town north of Jerusalem. And they passed a sentence on him. Listen to the sentence. Here's what happened. Zedekiah is captured and they, in front of him, bring all of his sons. And it says, they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him in chains, and took him to Babylon. So think about the cruelty, the brutality of this. They set all the heirs to his throne in front of him. They slaughter them all. Your line is gone. And the last thing you'll ever see is knowing that there is nothing left for your kingdom, for your line. So, Zedekiah, the uncle of Jehoiachin, his line has ended. He no longer will have a royal line to follow him. His lineage is wiped out, and it's the last thing that he'll ever see. So, uh, the king is complete. The, the, the line of that particular king, Zedekiah, is cut off. It goes further. The king is taken away. The, uh, his sons are killed. The people are starving. So now that the king is dead, the city basically surrenders. And here's the next few things that happen. So, um, verse 9 of chapter 25 of 2 Kings says, uh, it's talking about the, the head of the guard. And they'll mention him in a few minutes later. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. So the government is removed. It's time to wipe out religious traditions as well. The, the temple that Solomon built for, for God where God wrote His name, said, My name will be made great in this place, is now burnt to the ground. It's burnt to the ground. It is a, it's a pile of smoking rubble. In addition, they burned down all the houses of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is burned to the ground. But that's not enough. The city needs to be left in a place where it cannot be revived. So we go to verse 10. And, and the, all the army of the Chaldeans who are with the captain of the guard, that's the guy that burnt down the, the temple, broke down the walls all around Jerusalem. So, th this fortified city, everything inside is, is burnt. Now they're going to knock down all the walls. It's a, now it's a big, flat space. There's nothing to protect anyone inside. And then what do they do? And the rest of the people who were left in the city, the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So they broke down the walls. They exiled the people except for the poorest of the poor. And they said, listen, you can stay here. You farm the land. You grow grapes. You grow crops. You can stay. So the, the government is removed. The king, his line, the, the, the active king, his line is done. They've burned the temple. They've burned the houses. They've knocked the walls down. They've left the poorest of the poor. And it's not done yet. Verse 13. This is a mark of shame as the author is writing it. He is writing it in shame. Verse 13 says, "...and the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke it into pieces and carried the bronze." Babylon. This goes on. And basically all the ornamental pieces, all the fixtures that made Jerusalem a beautiful city, many of these things that Solomon himself 
and his workmen had, had put up to make Jerusalem a, a, like a shining diamond amongst the cities of the earth. All those things that made it beautiful, all those things that made it grand have been removed. And they make another city grand now. All that bronze, all that architecture is being put to use in other places. But that's not all. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar's not done yet. Yes, the grandeur of Jerusalem is gone. Yes, it's left in a, a heaping pile of burning ruins. Yes, everyone is gone except the poorest of the poor who are now farmers. And yes, the king and his sons are all dead and he had, can't see anymore and his line is gone. But there's more. So as we finish up chapter 25, I won't read the exact verses. You can see it there for yourself. What he does is he brings out the priests. He brings out the officers of the army. He brings out the king's advisors. And he brings out 60 representative Judahites. And he puts them in front of the people and he slaughters them for everyone to see. <laughs> Demoralization. Okay, okay, Israel, you think that you can do anything, or excuse me, Judah, you think you can do anything without your city? It would be with these people. Well, let me show you what we do. And they're gone. Nebuchadnezzar has effectively wiped out the Judean culture. He's, he's wiped them off the map. And so, the burning is complete. What's left? A blackened stain where Jerusalem once was. A burning heap where God was once worshipped. A scattered poor people where once Solomon's riches were piled up. It's It's nothing. Scorched earth. And in this moment, man, it's bleak, right? It's bleak. And this is what I want us to recall. This is not the first time that God has used drastic measures to divert the human heart. Not the first time. It's not something like, man, where did this come from? No, God has done this many times before. Think about Adam and Eve. Think about Noah. Think about, about Judah and Israel. So let's re rewind. What about Adam and Eve? God took decisive, harsh action, but it always, always is accompanied with a promise. Always. Adam and Eve's case. What happened? He gave them one rule. Do not eat of that tree. And they said, you know what? Cool. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what I want. And, and as they did what they want, what happened? They brought curses upon themselves. Death came upon them. And so what happened? God drastically kicked them out of the garden. You may not be here. He brought difficulty on their lives, but there was a promise attached. Genesis 3. He says to the lady, Eve, and He says to the serpent who tempted, He says, between you two, there will always be enmity. You'll be enemies. But from the woman will come one who will crush your head, serpent. Although you bruise His heel, He will utterly destroy you. The technical term for that moment in Scripture is the Proto-Evangelion. The first Gospel. God is saying, yes, the punishment is real. Here it is. But I will fix this. Drastic, decisive action with a promise. Let's fast forward to Noah. The world had become so evil during Noah's time that God said, I have to start over. And so He took Noah's family, He put them in the ark, and He destroyed everything else with water. And when it was all over, what did He do? He made a covenant 
with Noah and, and all of creation saying, I will never destroy the earth again by water. And how did it, what was the promise? I will put my bow in the clouds. So whenever we see a rainbow today, that is God's promise that He would never do that again. It's God's creation. It's God's symbol, the rainbow. That He would have mercy in that way. A drastic, decisive action accompanied with a promise. And so here with, with Israel and Judah, we have the same thing. It, from, a, from the prophecies of Zephaniah, who was alive and prophesied during the, the rule of Josiah, here's the decisive action. This is what he, the God is saying through the prophet. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world, will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. That is drastic and it is direct. God is taking action. But what's the promise? And then here's how this, that section of verses finishes. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, multiple nations. That's what peoples means. That all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him shoulder to shoulder. So what is God saying? I will purify the world. Every nation that has evil in it. I will purify it. I will take that out. And I will call from all those nations together a people for Myself that will serve Me together. Decisive, drastic action accompanied with a promise. And then again, in, in Jeremiah, here's another evidence of this. This is during the rule of Zedekiah. So, so God is speaking to Zedekiah, the, the last king of Judah, about what's going to happen to him. Listen, behold, the storm of the Lord, Jeremiah says to him. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has executed and accomplished the intentions of His mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. Jeremiah is saying, you're thinking that it's everyone else but you, and it includes you. God's wrath is being unleashed on you, Zedekiah and Judah, because you do not worship Him. Drastic action. Decisive action on God's part. But here's the promise from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put My law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be My people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know Me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And listen to this, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Drastic, decisive action leveling Jerusalem to a burnt, barren land with a promise. I will bring something new out of this. It'll be new and your sins won't count against you in it. And so what is the promise? Yes, Israel and Judah are being punished as we read these passages. They have been punished. But something new will replace it. They, they couldn't escape their sinfulness in the Scriptures that we've read this summer. They couldn't escape it. They were guilty. There was nothing to do other than face the consequences. But what God is saying in these promises is I will make a, a new way for you to escape. I, it won't be this way forever. 
You had to pay the consequences. In the future, there will be a way for you to escape them. So it's in this context of scorched earth, the smoldering Jerusalem, right? That's what the author has written. He wants us to see the smoke rising from the horizon as we grow closer. We see nothing but where this grand, beautiful city used to stand, where Yahweh was worshipped. It's a flat nub of smoke and stench of death. So in that context, the author wants to capture just, again, that, that glimmer of hope for us. A whisper of hope. He wants to show us the beginning of the fulfillment of these promises I just read to us. And so at the end of 25, we read this. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. So let's just put this in, in context. This is 26 years after everything we just read about happened in Jerusalem. So the fires are out. The, 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 the land is probably being cultivated by whoever's moved in. And, and so the, the destruction is there, but there's something else on top of it. It's not grand. It's probably simple. And, and so 26 years after that has taken place, this is what the author captures, this moment. In the twelfth month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, which means man of Marduk, you know the one, he's the king of Babylon, son of Nebuchadnezzar, has taken the throne of Babylon. In the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin. So if you remember, Zedekiah was the uncle of Jehoiachin. And so when he rebelled against Babylon, he was removed, and Zedekiah, his uncle, was put in place. So this is the king that was removed before Zedekiah took the throne. He free, graciously freed him from prison, and he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. What's the deal here? Okay, he's eating lunch with the king. No, listen, this is a glimmer of hope. What was God's promise to David? I will establish your throne forever. So here, as Jerusalem is knocked to the ground and the king's his sons are murdered and his eyes are plucked out, there's a glimmer of hope in the exiled king from the line of David. The author wants us to see, yes, we paid the piper, but God's promises will come true. This is a decisive action paired with God's promises. And so the line of David continues. At Advent, we'll be looking at Matthew 1 and, and this particular king, Jehoiachin, they call him Jeconiah in Matthew 1. He is listed in the lineage of Jesus. And so from this king living in Babylon, we get the new covenant maker. Jesus, the eternal king from the line of David. The one who gathers people from every nation to worship and serve God shoulder to shoulder. The one who writes the law on our hearts. Who forgives our sins. This last verse, 2 Kings 25, is the glimmer of that hope. And so, in that way, this promise means everything to us, church. This promise means everything to us. The destruction of Jerusalem, the exile of God's people, that was the burning of the blueberry fields to make way for a new crop. A new thing. A continued thing that God was doing. 
It was one step that had to be done in order for us to be made part of God's family, God's kingdom, to serve King Jesus. The burning of Jerusalem paved the way for our salvation. You see, hundreds of years later, Jesus came. God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life fulfilling the law that no one before or after could have done. He, he died a death in our place satisfying the curse of the covenant that we deserved. What happened to Jerusalem, in a sense, happened to Jesus on the cross. He was burned to the ground. And in power, He was resurrected and He ascended as King of everything forever from the line of David. And so what is the life of Jesus? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? It's yet another decisive action by God attached to a promise. A decisive action by God attached to a promise. What is the promise? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's our only hope. That's our only hope. That decisive action attached to that very promise. So that is one major application from 2 Kings 25 is that the burning down of Jerusalem was in fact making the way for us. New growth. New things. But there's one more immediate application I want to make before the sermon ends. I'd like to talk about this. So listen. We live in a time where, in a sense, our normal day-to-day lives have been burned to the ground. They've been burned to the ground. Our schedules, uh, how we do schooling, uh, you know, uh, how we interact with our neighbors, whether we did before or not. I mean, nothing normal really is left from the lockdown and the pandemic. We still aren't there. We may never be back there. There's There's a longing to be back to normal, but listen, the thing we knew before isn't there anymore. And what I want to ask is this, is this, God never takes drastic action in the world without a promise. He he never acts without purpose. And so the question I think we ought to ask ourselves, church, is what's God's purpose in this for me? What's God's purpose in this time for me? For you. So the question is, what new growth is God making room for in your life? What's something you didn't have time for before? What's something that didn't have room for before? What's something that God that was poisoning your life? What was something that was blocking new growth that now is gone? So before we hope too quickly to move back to normal, the question is, what can go? What can stay gone? What can we replace it with that will cause new growth and flourishing for God's people? Or for anyone? If you're going to pull something from this sermon, like a a nugget, if you will, here's what it would be. God always works with purpose and He never removes things without promise. God always works with purpose. Purpose. 
He never removes things without promise. And so, then we, we look at our lives right now. God has removed things from our life on purpose. He's not like, oh man, I didn't realize this was going to go down when coronavirus happened. No, He has removed things from your individual life, my individual life, on purpose. And I think in a lot of ways, we probably replaced it with very unhealthy habits. Maybe we watch more Netflix or something. But listen, the question then is, what is God calling us to? So what I want to leave you with is whether you're a, a faithful follower of Christ, you call yourself a Christian, or you don't, I want to leave you with a promise this morning. So for those of you uh, who are disciples of Jesus, you would consider yourself a Christian. Here is a verse from 1 Peter. Here's the promise you can hold on to. The thing that can guide you to uh, what, what is God wanting from this time? What's the new growth? Here's, here's a verse I think that can help us with that. 1 Peter 1. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Forever. Our lives will change drastically again before we meet Jesus face to face. This is not the last time, but it is the time we're dealing with right now. And so where do we go? What do we do? How do we know what, to, what, what God wants in our lives, new growth? And I say it's the very Word of God. It's the very Word of God. Our life and the glory that we find and the things that we do will pass away. The grass, grass withers and the flower falls. The Word of the Lord stands forever. That's the promise for us this morning, church. For those of you that are not, you don't consider yourself part of the church, you're not a Christian, you've not uh, had the experience of, of saying, I believe in you, Jesus, I think there's a promise for you too. I want you to think back to what Zephaniah had to say to King Josiah so many thousands of years ago. I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him shoulder to shoulder. Listen, in these days, as in were before the pandemic, the lost are being called in. You see, God has a family in the world and some of those people who are in His family don't know it yet. And I, I believe that there's someone listening today that is in that category. You, you feel the call of Jesus in your life. The pandemic has burned a lot of things to the ground. The normal way you've done things, the things you were used to, the things you found satisfaction from, they're gone. And you're looking for something else. I want to read to you this verse from 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is quoting the Old Testament. He says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. And here's what he says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What he's saying here is, listen, God is patient and God is kind and He's calling you to Himself. And, and Paul is saying to the Corinthians, he's saying to us now through this letter that we find in the Bible, today is that day to answer that call. To answer the, 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 the Lord's voice saying, come to Me, My child. Today is the day to believe in the decisive action of God and the promises of God. God sent Jesus to earth for you. He died for you. He rose again for you. And all you have to do is believe that that is true. And God says, if you believe, then you are saved. 
Today is the day of salvation. Let me pray for us. Father, what a time we live in. We keep hearing that. Things keep getting stranger and different. And um, I was reading this week about something called the wicked problem, something we only face once and there's no good answers to it. I feel like this has to be one of those times. We face something we've never faced before and there's no good answer to how to solve it in our lives. But there is one good answer and that is, how do I grow closer to the Lord? And the answer for those who already know Jesus is the Word of the Lord stands forever. The promises of God stand forever. They're all written down for us to read and understand. And I pray, God, that we go there and learn them and believe them and live as if they are true. I pray that that, that this pandemic has taken things from us that we never replace because they're worthless. And we fill those voids with You and Your Word. And I pray very fervently this morning for anyone out there who does not know Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. If this time in our world hasn't taught us that life is fragile, that that is uncontrollable, I don't know what can. And so may we put our faith in the only thing that's solid, and that is that Jesus came, He lived perfectly, He died unjustly for an unjust sinner like me. And then, in victory, He rose from the grave. And that is all mine. Not because I'm great or because I have secret knowledge, but simply because I believe I need that and I cannot save myself. I pray that that decision is made today by someone who's tuning in. We love You, Lord, so much. Thank You for Your mercy on us. I pray that as we begin the process of gathering back together as a church, you'd keep us healthy, keep us safe, and help us to rejoice in being back together in fellowship as we worship. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.